This is Her Deepest Ecologies, the podcast. I am your host, Jessica Gigo. We are at a turning point on this planet and in this country. In conversation with a wide range of artists, makers, creators, and caretakers, this podcast takes on two fundamental and interconnected questions. How do we care for ourselves and each other? How do we nurture the earth? Let's find out what these luminaries have to say. This is part two of my conversation with Martha Jordan. We had so much to talk about in regards to trumpeter swans and tundra swans in the Pacific Northwest that I decided to break our conversation into two parts. This is also the last episode of the first season of Her Deepest Ecologies. Thank you so much for listening. Things are are changing and you look at salmon restoration, which again uh, can be detrimental to to swan habitat. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. We have wins and we have losses. Uh, and that's throughout all of Western Washington. So I try to find that balance of win-win. Can we still have swans and salmon um, in our wetland areas? But it's it's beginning to be a, a challenge. So hopefully that helps you kind of understand it a little bit better. Yeah, it does. I mean, I still have sort of some lingering questions about about lead because I know that was a big topic for like when the 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 people from England that were speaking about the Buick Swan and that that population is on severe decline in our country. Like there have been. Well, I have a personal. I think I emailed you this, but we rescued a juvenile eagle that must have come out of the. We have a nest on our property, and you know, they said, we don't have people to bring it in, but if you want to bring it in, you can. And we were like, I've never, so we ended up getting an eagle into a dog crate, into our minivan, which was a whole thing (laughs) and very excited about it. But then, you know, the reality was that the eagle had already broken its wing and it hadn't healed properly. And it also had lead poisoning, which I thought was very interesting, but that is possibly historical lead, not anything they would have. So Lead is a whole separate issue from habitat. They're they're connected, but when you have so you have these loss of wetland habitat and and loss of wetlands, you have uh, the loss of agriculture wintering grounds. So you have a problem on the breeding grounds. You have problems on the wintering grounds, and we'll talk about Washington here. and, and then you add in problems that are uh, toxicity from lead. And now we have the new one, which is avian influenza. Well, it's not new, but it's risen up in a way that no one has seen before in memory of the people who are working with waterfowl. Probably never before in at least not in my 40 years of career. Avian influenza came and went. It's always been there, uh, but never like it is now. Why is it more virulent? Why is it? 
I have not yet found an answer and neither has anyone else. It, it sort of is what it is. So we'll just briefly touch on, on avian influenza and then get back to the lead. So AI is in the wild bird population, whatever wild bird you are. Why did it suddenly become more virulent? Uh, nature happens, you know, we, we have mutations. Uh, I can remember taking swabs and doing all this stuff because I've been trained by WDFW to, to do all these things. Then we ended up, you know, last fall where there was a lot of avian influenza going on. What started it for me to realize how insidious it was, was I don't know if you were aware, but there was a trumpeter swan that landed as a juvenile in the spring at Coltis Bay wetland on Whidbey Island, South Whidbey Island. And it stayed there, mm -hmm. never left. And then it started flying around the next year, but it never left. And it was there the next summer and the following summer. So it's been there for three years. There were a lot of news stories about that swan. <laughs> yes. And and I and I I've seen the swan and you know, it's like, why didn't it leave? I don't know. <laughs> like, why do people move away from New York and some don't? I mean, it's just sort of like it got there, it thought this was good, and next it it just stayed. Even when adult swans came in to see it or sub-adults as, as I would more likely say uh, and they left and and swans don't mature till they're three to four years old so the idea that he would be meeting it too was just a pipe dream but um, everything was going along fine I knew the people that were monitoring the bird I, I knew them quite well and suddenly the bird is found dead and so uh, I immediately knew what the potential was. And um, so I contacted the people that had picked the bird up and I said, I need to pick it up in, from you and get it to the Department of Fish and Wildlife for testing for AI. And they were very cooperative. And I asked them the one question is, did you see any other dead birds on the pond? or any of the adjacent wetlands the bird visited over a period of about three or four days before it died. No, no. So I pick up the bird, I give it to the department, they test it, and much to their shock, it had AI. Hmm. Now, swans rarely seem to get AI, but this one was positive for AI. And what also I found was that people had noticed that baby ducks had died on that lake hmm. about the same time that the swan was found dead, just prior to the swan dying, which means AI was present in the wetland. So if you see dead baby ducks, you know you have AI, more than likely. I mean, they're just laying there dead, not being predated. So that began everybody going, whoops, <laughs> what's going on? So that was our first alert, and that was like in um, July, August, maybe it was August. And so it was really a, a challenge. And then, uh, like I said, uh, swans started migrating. We started seeing more dead swans. Uh, snow geese, obviously, last year were dying all over Skagit Bay and, and beyond. 
Um, like 300 or so, I think is what I read. Was it like 300? They 300? Oh, actually, the total number, if you look at Western Washington for snow geese alone, it was probably close to 4,500 4, or more. Not just in Skagit. Mm. They also had to die up on the Columbia wow. River bound by Vancouver, where another group of snow geese go, and on Sauvie Island in Oregon. Mm -hmm. uh, but yes, it was more than 300. It was probably because nobody was able to pick them all up. Right, right. So the one thing I want to make it really clear to any listener here is, coming into this year and moving forward, if you see a sick duck, goose, swan, or even a bird, do not pick it up. Do not put it in your car. Do not transport it. If it has AI, you are spreading AI by taking that bird somewhere. Call the Department of Fish and Wildlife. You can look them up online and they have a avian influenza reporting line. You can also call up in your zone would be the Wacom Humane Society Wildlife Rehab Center. Uh, they are incredibly good resource. They will tell you what to do. And if possible, they'll find a way to pick up the bird from you, especially if it's a swan or a goose. I mean, it's really, really important that you not pick these up. Last year, people were putting them in their cars and the exposure to people and their pets uh, is high. It is transmissible to humans and dogs. Mm -hmm. That's the bottom line. So, I mean, I was wearing my Tyvek suit when I had the small die off near me and we picked up, I don't know, 15 in a day and 15 the next day. So there was quite a number of swans that died down where, where I am. Not anything close to lead, lead poisoning die off, but it was an AI die off. Um, so, so you have the AI issue and that is contributing. It is still going to continue this fall. They have had swan AI die-offs in the tundra world, uh, and they're expecting some mortality in trumpeters as well as tundras this fall as the migration begins, mm. especially because snow geese are carrying it and ducks are carrying it, especially ducks. Mm -hmm. You don't find the ducks because they get eaten by eagles <laughs> or other raptors or other predators you find the snow geese and the swans because A, they're bigger and they're white. Mm. So you notice them. You just don't notice all the other stuff. All the other ones that blend in. Same color as dirt. So just letting you know about that. So then you go back and then you have the lead poisoning issue. And the lead poisoning issue has been around since the advent of uh, shotgun pellets and uh, ammunition of any kind. Lead is uh, used for a wide variety of purposes um, in, the, in the hunting and shooting world because it's malleable, it works very well for shooting and it's lethal. Lead was banned in 1989 in uh, Washington and then by 1990 in the US. And I believe in the mid 90s, late 90s, it was banned in Canada. So completely so banned America, from all shot, not just like hunting news. So all shot is, uh, well, all shot used for hunting 
has to be non-lead. All right, they still make lead shot for target loads for shooting clay targets. Do we recommend them? No, um, but they are still made in the US. I can't speak for Canada because I really don't know. Lead shot is also made for uh, upland bird loads because only by federal law is lead banned for the hunting of migratory waterfowl. Now, it's also banned in some states for upland bird use. Iowa, Texas, you can't use it anymore on uh, morning doves. Yeah, morning doves. And, and there's other dove hunting states that have gone to non-lead ammunition. So the reality is for waterfowl hunting of any kind, you cannot use lead shot. Then you, but you can still use it for shooting clay targets and shooting upland bird. So in our state, which is all I can speak to, um, is lead shot is banned for upland bird hunting on state owned lands or lands leased for pheasant release, private lands. Otherwise, you can shoot lead shot for target shooting and for upland bird hunting everywhere else, hmm. except you can't shoot it over wetlands. That's a no-no. Do people still do that? Of course they do. Hmm. Do people shoot target shooting over the very farmland that snow geese and swans and the Skagit come into in the winter? Absolutely, yes. I've seen it myself. Even last year, I saw some of it. It's frustrating, but um, it's education, 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 one gun at a time, as I say. Get the lead out one gun at a time. Uh, and, and at target ranges like Kenmore Gun Club, you have a gun club up in Whatcom County. You have shooting clubs. Every place has them. Uh, can you still use lead shot? Yes. Do they have a lead recovery program? Maybe. The one in Whatcom sure doesn't. So they have done exclusion zone areas on that shooting range so the waterfowl don't come in and feed where the lead shot is. Hmm. Either way it works. However, it still contaminates the soil. The lead still leaches out into the soil. And one of the things that lead also does is um, it gets into the soil, then the earthworms eat the soil, earthworms become lead laden. Robin comes along, eats the earthworm and dies. Mm. So lead is toxic to everything. So the more we can educate to get the lead out of ammunition, the better. And it is a process. It's getting better and better. Europe is doing better than we are, as you saw at the conference. <laughs> But we're making progress. It's just slower than I personally would like. Um, and and you have uh, you have people who will never want to change. And this is just the reality. So we do what we can, and and just get people to switch over, 
and just understand that lead is toxic to all life. Where else in the do we have in our life where we can spew out a toxic substance for a recreational sport that is legal? Hmm. The answer is we don't, but we still let it happen. And then we all pay the price of having to clean up the dead animals or the soil after the fact, which is, which is hard, hmm. you know. When I was first doing the swan die-off that happened in the early 2000s, <clears throat> and I think I, I I was I was doing necropsies of the same during those early years, and somebody asked me something about lead, and I went, 4,000 pounds of dead swans can't be wrong. <laughs> and it was two tons of swans. Oh, my gosh. In that, in a two-year period, 4,000 pounds of dead swans. And, and they just looked at me and I said, well, that's the reality when you have, <clears throat> you know, what we could collect uh, was close to 300 swans. And then we do the necropsy. Well, 300 swans is a lot of pounds. Yeah, they're big. <laughs> yeah, they're big. Exactly right. And um, and it was a good effort. It was really interesting uh, to work with the veterinarians and others that, that came and, and did some incredible work. Uh, but at the same time, you know, when people would say, well, you know, so big deal, we lose a few swans and I'd go, well, that may not seem like a big deal to you, but, you know, it's a big deal because if we could have used all the money that we spent, the agency spent and others spent trying to solve the lead issue in Whatcom and Skagit County, we could have done a tremendous amount for waterfowl conservation. Mm-hmm. instead we were trying to figure out how to stop the the carnage that was happening and then um management actions were taken at at, uh, at the uh, judson lake and <clears throat> the mortality went down by 80 percent which was incredible we were all really happy can we fix judson lake not really there's no rehab restoration for judson lake uh, it's a cross-border issue, uh, but the reality is the expense of it is beyond anybody's budget, and is it going to solve the problem? No, it, it won't. Swans will still keep dying. So we all looked at it and just said, if we do a management action, how much of an impact is that? Well, that costs about maybe three to four thousand dollars a year. Rehabilitation of the lake is probably four million. <laughs> Do the math. Right. We're much better off to take the uh, the uh, management action and continue that for a hundred years <laughs> versus trying to clean up something that likely we cannot accomplish in today's world because we lack uh many things including a better technology right yeah it, it, the logistics were are just uh really daunting and it's true it's not that anybody wasn't doing their job it, it was just the reality of judson lake so uh yes we're they're still monitoring judson they're still doing management action at judson and they will continue to do so 
but we're still now seeing lead poisoning moving south. And now we have die-offs at Crescent Lake. We have uh, in, in Sonomish County, we have die-offs down in Fall City, Carnation. And while they may not be 300 a year, the last one was 85. The one before that was over 100 in just a two-week period. Yeah. So I'm actively doing work with those die-offs that are down here. Um, and it's really hard. The, the older I get, the more we have to do them. It's like, wow, another season with how many dead swans are ringing Crescent Lake today? You know, like 30. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. Yeah. It's really hard when you just stack them up like cordwood. And then you pick up a few live ones that all you can do is euthanize them. So because they're really, by the time I get to the swans, the chances of survival are as close to zero as it possibly gets. And they're not rehabilitatable. I'll take a blood sample. Uh, I can send it up to Whatcom Humane, or I can take it somewhere else that has a lead analyzer more close. And it's way off the charts. So it's just not not super feasible. Yeah, well, I appreciate this work that you've been doing for so many years, so many decades, and just you know your your curiosity and your care that I think has probably saved a lot of swan lives as well. Um, I just appreciate. Well, to- and it's really about helping the birding public or the the non hunting public to be aware as well that. You know, I, it's like they stand, people who go birding, uh, many people, not not all, obviously. Uh, like last year when I was out and I was with a group of people and they were looking at, one person in particular was looking out at the swans of the, the, the dairy farm. And she said, isn't it great to see how the farmer must really appreciate the swans mowing his field? <laughs> and I, I went, what? <laughs> And I explained to her, no, they're not mowing his field. They're actually eating his crop that he would like to have for his cows. And that each one of those swans eats 12 pounds of veggies a day. Hmm. And currently what you're looking at is about 450 swans. Do the math. And I said, I invite you to walk out into the field with me. So we walked out about 10 feet into the field. The swans were way on the other side. And I said, look. The grass is no higher than your ankle, is it? She said, no. And I said, normally it would be higher than your knee. Hmm. And he would have grass for his cows. He would mow it, silage it. And I said, his estimate of loss this year was between fifty and $75,000. And I said, nobody pays him back. Nobody pays him a fee to go birding. He eats that loss. And he's okay with it. He's come to realize that's just a cost of hmm. doing business. And and so uh, he, he'd rather not have it. But again, uh, I'm grateful that he does, which is why dairy farms are so important and why we need to value them instead of vilifying them, which is why so many dairy farms have moved to Eastern Washington because of environmental pressures on the west side there have been some market forces that's true and there are things that we cannot control even in the united states 
I've been well educated by the dairy industry, but it really began with um, very strong environmental regulations that just drove the dairy industry away. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we now have non-waterfowl friendly farming proliferating everywhere. Hmm. And if we lose enough of it in the Skagit, where will the snogies go? Where will the swans go? And then I will ask you, where will the tourists go that support your eco-tourism? Yeah. We're all a big symbiotic relationship. Yeah, well, I yeah, I appreciate how swans really make you, I mean, just as someone who's worked in agriculture and been very focused on that and even the controversy between farmers and water quality and salmon, you know, taking the swan view of the whole picture, it really makes you think about what are, what is the habitat here? What is the ecosystem? What do we need to sustain? Um, how how do you see this work continuing? I mean, are you are you mentoring people to... Um, oh, I'd really like to say the answer to that was yes, but I have learned something over the years. Um, people have passions in their life. And maybe it wasn't where they thought they'd start out. Like I, I never started out wanting to work with swans. Okay, they picked me. I did not pick them. But what I discovered about them is that they're an ambassador species. They break the ice. They bring people from the far right and the far left and all the places in between to the table. I have worked on the Elwha River Restoration Project. I have worked on the Trans Mountain Pipeline Project, the Northern Tier Pipeline Project. And in all of those big, incredible projects, swans have been one of the little factors that have had a bigger influence than you can ever imagine on these projects. Little did I ever know. And uh, especially in the Elwha project, how much of an impact swans would have, even though they were a tiny little sliver of that, of that bigger project. Um, what I discovered is it brings people to talk at the table, to find common ground. And even the hunters and non-hunters, I mean, there are still people in the state of Washington that advocate very strongly for a swan season. It's not gonna happen likely in my lifetime, if ever, because the reality is it's not a trumpeter swan hunt that's happening in the rest of the country. It's a tundra swan hunt with an incidental take of very few trumpeter swans. We, on the other hand, have 80 to 90% trumpeter swans. So we don't have a tundra swan hunt potential in the state of Washington. It just doesn't happen. So all of these things happen and we have to connect with each other and talk with each other. And swans seem to be a common ground. People like them on both sides of the aisle, or they don't. I mean, there are definitely people who are anti-swan. Uh, but it's interesting how they do create an interface where you can have a conversation uh, and, and discover what you have in common, what you don't have in common a time to educate and a time to advocate. Looking at the bigger picture of a farmer who's supporting a lot of swans, lives across the street, literally from a wildlife area that has multiple users 
a lot of controversy about how all those multiple users are going to get their needs met. And I'm looking at it as, so if the swans go into the wildlife area and they're eating the crops that are grown for waterfowl, but they get precluded from doing that by all the recreational activity, is that kind of like not doing what the wildlife area is supposed to do? And as it turns out, I discovered in my journey that there's a law that says our WDFW wildlife areas must provide quality habitat to prevent crop depredation on adjacent farmlands. What a novel concept. I was so glad to see that state law. I don't know when it was passed, but I took advantage of that. And now that wildlife area is managed very differently. And we benefit swans, we benefit the farmer, and we benefit the the, the birding public and the hunting public is not really impacted. Hmm. So it was a win, even if some people don't view it that way. Um, but it was, it, it's a compromise that creates that bigger picture. And if swans had not been there, we would have lost a lot of the wildlife value of this wildlife area by other user groups. So in some ways, swans just kind of take me down a path that I saved Heinz Marsh because there were swans in it. Little did I realize that that would take 20 years of my life <laughs> or more, probably about 30 years. Um, and yet I, every day I look at that wetland and maybe there's only eight or nine swans that come in there every winter, but that's habitat for how many shorebirds and how many raptors and mm -hmm. how many waterfowl and salmon habitat and, and swans. And it's the largest interdunal wetland left in North America. And it's right here in Washington. Hmm. And it's incredible. I, I didn't do it alone by any means, but I led that whole thing. And now the Martha Jordan birding trail exists at Ledbetter State Park. Oh, that's uh, wonderful. So every time I go down there and see that marsh, I, it's not about my trail. It's about, wow, I, you know, all these people that came together and I kept them focused and, and it took a long time. And it took a lot of money and energy and people taking risks. But everybody kind of saw the value of this wetland and swans kept really being that big focal point. So yeah, swans drove the bus, but it wasn't about a hundred swans. It was about, can we bring them back? And if we bring them back, everything else will come back. Hmm. So oh, that's that. to me, that's what it's about. And then when I see people posting on YouTube or wherever about their journey on this Martha Jordan birding trail and how much that has meant to them personally, I just go, wow, that's really incredible. Um, it made a difference in their life. Mm -hmm. They don't know me. I don't know them. But it's been a changer for them that that place exists because of swamps. Even if you don't see them, right? They they're still they're, there in the winter. They're there. I appreciate this. I also think you need to write a, an autobiography of your entire life with swans. Just I don't know if you're working on that or not, but uh, yeah, actually, there's a <laughs> colleague of mine who has. I'll send you the um, the book that he wrote, uh, and it's a 
it's a biography of a lot of, of his talking to different naturalists in Wisconsin. Sumner is an amazing human being. Hmm. I'm so glad that he's my friend and, and uh, a mentor. Uh, he, he's encouraged me to write every day, which I have a hard time doing. I am terrified of that little bit. You know, some people are writers. I'm a storyteller. I, I got that when I took a writing class from some really incredible writers, uh, nature writers. So I just need to to do it. And you've encouraged me today. But yes, there is a book. And um, one of them, it might be called Earth Crimes. Oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a story of Heinz Marsh, which I just need to sit down with uh, my <clears throat> word processor here and just speak the story of Heinz Marsh and the still the largest hydraulic permit violation and shoreline violation in state history. Hmm committed on property that I stewarded. And uh, as a result of all of that, uh, winning in court and blah, 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 and amazing human beings and, and agencies and private organizations, Heinz Marsh is more secure now than it's ever been in the last hundred years. Hmm. And Columbia Land Trust is still buying more land. And there's still hope yet to defeat a really evil land person but uh our de developer and so it's it's that kind of thing that really keeps me fed in terms of sometimes just even one phone call or one letter or you meet somebody in the field and five years later you find out that it changed a whole other something mm -hmm. you never know you never know so for me the swans are like that yeah i meet somebody in an elevator I talked to them briefly about something to do with swans. And four years later, I find out they've gone somewhere off and done something incredible. And, I, and I'm like, wow, well, that was cool. I had no idea. And it's not that I'm advocating something. I just simply took the time to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. And swans were that catalyst. Thank you for listening to Her Deepest Ecologies, the podcast. For more information on our guest, please visit the Substack page for photos, complete bios, links mentioned in our conversation, and more. These interviews were recorded at Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle, Washington. Thanks to sound engineer Aisha. All episodes were edited at my farm, Harmony Fields.